This message was presented at the GYC 2016 conference, when all has been heard, in Houston, Texas. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Well, thank you all for coming. Um, it's even more flattering when people come back to your seminar after they've already heard some of them. So thank you for those of you who've come back. Uh, would you like to pray with me? Because I, I want to pray for myself. Um, I do this anyway on my own, but I thought maybe you'd like to be involved in my prayer. And also I'd like to pray for the other speakers too, because I know they have many people who are listening to them. And I hope that each meeting that you go to will be a blessing to you and that it will also be um, something that you need to hear because I, I love how God works those things out sometimes. Dear Father in heaven, I want to thank you so much for the blessing that you've given me just to be here. Um, it's so inspiring to be able to be in a group of people, especially young people, who love you and want to draw closer to you. And some of us, I know, feel a little isolated coming from the little areas that we do and to be somewhere like here to have so many thousands of people around us who also love you. Um, just really nice to see that this is this might be part of the population of heaven one day. So thank you for that. And Lord, I want to ask that you would especially be with the other speakers who are speaking. I I'm sad that I'm missing out on what they're talking about, too, but I thank you that they're reporting these meetings so that we can listen to them later and that we can also be inspired by them later. And I want to ask that you would bless me, too. Um, I know that I put work into these talks, but I also know that the Holy Spirit can imbue the words that you would have me speak, even amidst all of the things that I've planned and that you might have inspired me to speak to. So I ask these things, and I thank you for these things in your son Jesus' name. Amen. I love the name of Jesus because um, I, I was reading once that um, when we say Jesus' name, we often don't realize the weight of that name, but what happens in heaven when his name is said all heaven just hushes and just is in awe of his name. So just a, just a word of inspiration that when you are praying and you say in Jesus' name, don't rush through it. Really get the full sense of, man, I'm praying and in his name, God will hear my prayer and will speak on behalf of me too. So it's a beautiful thing and I'm just thankful that we do get to pray. Um, I want to talk to you about the gift of guilt now, I know some of you probably came, came here because you feel guilt, and so I'm glad that you're here. Um, before I start, I want to share a story with you. When I was younger, I went to, uh, I guess it was like a, a conference office, a church conference office. There was a party. I don't remember if it was somebody retiring, if it was a birthday party, an anniversary, or whatever, but I went there with my family. And I walked into the women's restroom. I was younger. I walked into the women's restroom, and I saw a purse on the counter. And I saw the purse on the counter, and I thought, oh, man, somebody left their purse in here. And then my next thought was, well, I want to return the purse to the person who owns this, but I don't want to go looking through the purse to find their ID and have them walk in here. So in my naive um, state of mind, 
I decided that I was going to take the purse into the stall, check it in there so nobody would see me going through a purse because I knew that would look kind of guilty. And so as I walked into the stall, the woman who owned the purse saw me take the purse into the stall and started railing on me that I was stealing her purse and taking all her things, and I just stood there. (laughs) I had no idea what to say, because I realized how guilty I looked. I felt awful. I didn't want to show my face in the place afterwards. I did not want to walk out of the bathroom. I knew I had to, because then other questions would be asked if I didn't leave the bathroom. But I felt so guilty. And that's just one of the stories I've felt guilty about in my entire life. I don't want to share with you all of the things I should feel guilty about. Those are personal between me and God, um, and maybe me and the person if I offended them. But I just felt so guilty, and that stuck with me for a, a long time. And I know other areas in our lives we feel guilty about, and they stick with us. That guilt sticks with us. But you might notice I'm speaking about the gift of guilt. And there is a gift that comes with guilt. Many of you probably don't feel it. And you've heard me talk in seminars before about the difference between feelings and what's true. But sometimes feelings are a reflection of what's true. And sometimes feelings are not a reflection of what's true. And I want to show you the difference between those two. And so I'm going to share with you the gift of guilt. The parable of the foot. I like how Jesus used parables to show practical examples of things. Um, I asked yesterday or last night if any of you like to hike. Who likes to hike in here? Great. I like to hike too. I really like to hike. I love places that look kind of like this, you know, with lots of grass and everything. And in California, we've had some good rain, so there's a lot of grass near where I live. And so the hiking trails have a lot more flowers and, well, not flowers so much now, but a lot more grass and we will have flowers in the spring. I've been thanking God so much for the rain because of the spring flowers we're going to get that I almost imagine that they're there already. But when we go hiking, have you ever been hiking and you've had maybe a soreness or a rubbing sensation happen on your foot somewhere? Now, if you keep going and you don't stop when that happens, what happens? You have a blister. Oops. Sorry, my clicker's really sensitive. You start to get a blister. And if you don't stop when you have a blister formed, what happens? It pops, and you can get this. Don't worry, I'm not going to go too far with this. (laughs) But if you don't take care of it at this point, what can happen? You can get infection, and I'm going to cut to the chase. You can have a lot of things happen. You can actually get to the point, if you don't take care of a sore that happens on your leg, you can actually eventually need amputation. Are you all thankful for blisters? Guilt is a sign. I want you to think about guilt as being a sign. It doesn't mean something is necessarily happening. It's a sign that something could happen. Just like all of the signs that we have on the road, are you thankful for those signs? 
Imagine if you're merging onto the freeway and this is your first time and you didn't know what you're doing and there was no merge sign to tell you, hey, my lane turns into the one that's already coming up alongside me as I'm going onto the freeway. I have had times where I've not seen the sign and I've forgotten, hey, those people behind me may not be looking for me and they need to be looking for that sign too. How about at crossroads? We have stop signs and we have lights that have different signs represented by those lights. If we didn't have those things, what kind of mayhem would we have on the roads? A lot. And some people don't follow the signs, and that's why you know we stop a little bit longer than we need to, even when the light turns green after it's been red for a while. I'm thankful for signs, but a lot of people don't like signs. They don't like things that, are, that tell them not to do things or don't go this far. They don't want to have those limitations. Eve had a limitation when she was in the garden. There was a sign put there, and that sign was a do not come close sign. God and the angels had told her that she was not to go near the tree of knowledge of good and evil. In Genesis 3, it tells us that Satan used a serpent at that place, that that serpent was more subtle or cunning, that it caused her to question God, or at least put it out there that she should question God or have doubt in him. And he said, you won't die. Your eyes will be opened, which appeals to our pride. Sometimes we don't like signs because we don't want to be told things we don't want to hear about ourselves. Eve saw that the tree was good. Now, we don't know if there was anything inherently wrong about the tree, but we do know that there was something wrong about the tree. Because as long as God tells us not to, is there something wrong with going near it? Is there something wrong with eating it? Absolutely. And none of this was good. I'm going to share with you a little bit. I teach psychology in, um, at Weimar College. And one of the things, one of the terms that I teach my students is the term confirmation bias. Confirmation bias is the practice of looking for things that violate or validate, sorry, validate our point of view or what we want to believe. So sometimes if I want to believe something, even if I'm told something else, I'm only going to look for the things that actually validate what I want to believe. This happened in our election recently. There was a lot of confirmation bias going. I'm not going to tell you which candidate was right or wrong. That's, I don't want to go there. But if you watched you know, what was going on in the news, if you were on social media, I saw a lot of people who were voting for one candidate versus a lot of people voting for another candidate post things, email things that all confirmed their bias about their candidate. They would only post the articles that supported, even if there were 15 other articles that disproved what they had said. They would only post the articles that proved, and often they wouldn't even look at the articles that didn't prove, or the videos that didn't prove what they believed. And I say prove quote unquote. But Adam looked for a reason to eat the fruit and ultimately not have to give up Eve rather than trust God. 
And sometimes when we want something bad enough, we're willing only to look at the things that confirm the bias that we already have. There's another term, though. It's called belief perseverance. And this is a little bit more passive of a term, but this term is the unwillingness to see alternatives to an already held belief. And this is what we call closed-mindedness. Now, I don't believe in the term closed-mindedness like most people do. Closed-mindedness, to me, is when we're not willing to look at other things, but sometimes in our society, it means I'm not willing to look at things that most people don't agree with. But it doesn't always mean I'm not willing to look at things that maybe I believe, but others are saying is wrong, and they have something else that they want to share with me. And Adam and Eve in this situation had belief perseverance because rather than recognizing and confessing their sin, what did they do? They covered their sin. What is the result of sin? When man transgressed the divine law, his nature became evil, and he was in harmony and not at variance with Satan. And this is from Great Controversy, page 505. But there was something else that God created, and that's enmity. And in Genesis 3.15, it says, And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and and thou shalt bruise his heel. So God actually put a hatred or hostility between us and Satan, rather than leave us holy to the destruction of Satan. So what is the result of this enmity? The sentence pronounced on Satan, I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. Was to our first parents a promise of the redemption to be wrought out through Christ. And that's from Acts of the Apostles, page 222. God actually put something between us and the very being that we made a contract with in sin so that we would not wholly stay connected to Satan. That was a gift that God gave us. So even in our guilt, God put something there so that we would not wholly cling to the devil in sin. So what is the result of this enmity? Christ in sanctuary says, This sentence uttered in the hearing of our first parents was to them a promise. While it foretold war between man and Satan, it declared that the power of the great adversary would finally be broken. Though they must suffer from the power of their mighty foe, they could look forward to final victory. And in the second, um, second section, uh, that was from page 19 and page 20, it says, Heavenly angels, angels more fully opened to their first parents the plan that had been devised for their salvation. Adam and his companion were assured that notwithstanding their great sin, they were not to be abandoned to the control of Satan. I believe that's one of the reasons we have guilt, is so that we won't be abandoned to Satan to the control of Satan. The Son of God had offered to atone with his own life for their transgression. Does anybody know anything about congenital analgesia? This is a condition where you you lose the pain nerves 
that cause you to stop doing things. And in this little girl's case, she has frequent injuries, physical injuries, absent or reduced sense of smell, lack of pain sensation, and the inability to feel foreign objects in her eyes, also mouth injuries. And the reason all of these things happen is because when you're a little child, if you walk through that door back there and you accidentally hit it, what are you going to do the next time you walk through that door? You're going to walk a little bit wider because you realize when you hit it, pain was caused. And so you're going to do something different so you don't get that pain again. How about when you are you know, moving your hand around and you might scratch your face or something and you accidentally hit your eye? The next time you scratch your face, you're going to make special care not to get your finger too close to your eye. Well, these little kids don't feel pain. So sometimes, you know, if mom's cooking something on the stove and the little kid comes by and puts their hand on the stove, they don't feel it. And so what happens? It blisters and it burns, and they still don't feel it. Isn't that a sad state of being? This is so bad that parents have to put goggles over their children's eyes. They have to put helmets on their heads. They have to put knee pads, elbow pads. They have to put gloves on their hands. And they have to watch them 24-7 to make sure that they don't hurt themselves because it won't hurt them even though they're hurting themselves. That's a sad state to be in. And yet so many of us hate the fact that we experience pain when we do something wrong. But that's actually a gift from God that when you do something wrong, that you do feel pain. Because when we feel pain, what should we do? What will we want to do? Correct it so we don't feel that pain again. So why is guilt a gift? Guilt, like pain, helps us recognize where we are in relation to where we need to be. I have this picture up here of a student in a class because when I was in college, um, I had, it was probably later on in college because, you know, by the time you get to your junior and senior year in college, you start having smaller and more specific classes. And I had been in, um, I, I haven't always been a therapist before I became a therapist. I used to do fundraising for a living, and my degree was in public relations. So I'm actually doing some of my degree because I'm presenting, but I didn't actually go to school to um, be a therapist originally. And I was in my public relations classes, and there was another student in my class who was actually a pretty good friend of mine, and we'd been in most of these classes together. And for some reason, at some point in my education and my time with this person, I started to notice that just about every day when I was in class with him, that um, he would say things that I didn't like to hear. And it was one of those things, I don't know if you're anything like me, but sometimes people, I don't know why, I just don't like them. They get on my nerves. And in this case, this guy in my class, who was actually a friend of mine, and I hadn't had any problems with him up to this point, I don't remember, started, when we would talk in class, because it was a very informal kind of class, when he would say things, I would just be like, oh, can you just stop talking, please? 
Why do you have to say that? What's wrong with you? Just be quiet. These were the thoughts I was thinking. And I'm being very real with you guys right now. But I know as a therapist that many of you have felt this way too, so I can feel safe sharing with you and all the other people who might hear this on Audioverse. <laughs> but I was, feel, I was feeling some real bad feelings towards him. And in, this, in the span of these feelings, this was happening over at least days, if not weeks, I don't remember, it started to dawn on me, you know, Amanda, the ugliness is not with him, the ugliness is with you. Because why is it that you've been friends with him for so long, and all of the things that he's set up until this point haven't rubbed you the wrong way, and now it's rubbing you the wrong way, and you're starting to feel these things towards him. And I was really convicted, and I thought, man, God, I don't like to feel this way because it makes me ugly. People can't necessarily see on the outside what's going on, but I feel ugly on the inside, and I don't like this ugliness that's happening inside of me, and I know this isn't from you. And I prayed about it. I said, God, please change me because I know he's not the problem. Because he hadn't said anything different. It wasn't about that. And I don't remember how long it took after this, but at some point, when we were in class one day, he was talking, and it dawned on me, I'm not annoyed by him like I was last week. I'm not frustrated with every little thing that he's saying. That's the power of God to change our hearts. But also, it's the power of God when he convicts us and gives us, allows us to experience that pain, that we can take that pain and go, this is not what I should be feeling right now. And God, I know you can change my heart. And God promises to change our heart. We see that many times in the Bible. But there's also something that happens, because I know not everyone is being convicted of sin when they feel guilt. Sometimes guilt is also misinterpreted. And guilt is misinterpreted because I put this picture up here because while we would be lost without the feeling and acknowledgement of guilt, often it is misinterpreted due to the whispers of Satan. And there are some times in our lives where we're feeling guilt and it's appropriate, but there's other times in our lives too where we're feeling guilt and it's not appropriate. And maybe we haven't done anything. Maybe we're not feeling anything negative because of something that we're doing. But we're feeling negatively because of the whispers of Satan. And sometimes those whispers come through other people. And I want to share a little bit of that with you now. So guilt gets misinterpreted two ways. One is we take on guilt that isn't ours. There's another term in psychology, and it's called projection. And this is a little bit different than what I said the other day when I talked about the five Ps, and it included project. Projection, projection is when the person who is, I'll just give you an example. It's easier to explain it with an example. If I am have, if I am a selfish person, and I don't want to acknowledge that I'm selfish, sometimes what a person can do is actually project, project that selfishness onto another person. So say, for instance, I'm with you, just pretend it's the two of us, and we're having a nice non-dairy ice cream cone. And that non-dairy ice cream cone is really good, and we're both eating it together. We're talking and enjoying our time. 
And somehow, maybe you're talking a little bit more than me, and I finish my ice cream faster than you do. Well, I get to the end of my ice cream and I say, wow, that was really good. Can I have some of yours? And you think to yourself, well, you just finished ice cream. We both have the same amount, and now you want mine? And I say, well, you're selfish if you won't give me your ice cream. That's, That's selfish not to share. Well, I'm calling you selfish, but is that necessarily true of what's happening? I'm being selfish because I just finished mine and now I want yours. But I'm projecting my own selfishness onto you because if I don't put that on you, then you'll feel okay to say no and not share it with me. And really my goal is to get you to share yours with me. So that's what projection is. It's when the perpetrator or the identified person has a certain trait and they don't want to acknowledge their own trait and so they put it onto someone else to cause them to feel bad so that they can ultimately get their goal. And some of you are probably experiencing this in your own lives by other people. And the worst part of that is not just the projection But then there's something called projective identification. And that's when you, hearing me say that you're selfish, start thinking to yourself, wow, I really am selfish because I'm not sharing my ice cream with her. And that it is important to share. Now, this is just an example. There can be other more dramatic ways that this might be happening in your own life. Or maybe even you're doing this with other people. I've given this part of the presentation before, and I've had people say, wow, that's actually me. I'm the one doing that, which is wonderful because not everybody who does this recognizes that they're doing it. But sometimes the guilt we feel is because actually someone else is projecting that, their own traits onto us and causing us to take ownership of those traits. And, they, and this is specifically something called gaslighting. And some of you might have heard of this because this is a term that's been going around a little while. But there are different forms of gaslighting. And the first form is called withholding. And this is when the other person pretends not to understand you or flat out refuses to listen to you. He or she might say things like, you don't want to hear this again. Or it might come in the form of countering. The other person questions your memory, even if you're sure you know what happened. I've had clients do this with me sometimes. They'll say, you told me this. And I say, that doesn't sound like me, though. And I'm thinking, do you have proof of that? And they'll, they'll say, oh, well, no, but I know you said this. And I'm thinking, that doesn't sound like something I would say. I'm not saying I didn't say it, but I know it doesn't sound like something I'd say. And then they say, you're wrong, you never remember things correctly, or you're imagining things that never happened. The next part of gaslighting, or the next example of gaslighting, is blocking or diverting. This is when the other person changes the subject to silence you or questions how you're feeling, saying things like, is that another crazy idea you got from your... mother, father, sister, whatever. And this is a way to shut you down and block you from being able to ask questions. By the way, these are some of the ways that the devil uses with us, too. Have you noticed these things? 
Sometimes he'll say things to us or we'll hear a thought go through our head of, oh, wow, maybe I am crazy. Maybe I am wrong. And I believe sometimes Satan uses people to do this to us, too. But the next one is called trivializing. And this is when the other person makes your needs or feelings seem unimportant, constantly telling you that you're too sensitive or that you're going to get angry over a little thing like that. You're trying to express something about the relationship that you don't like, that you're hoping that person will change. And they say, oh, that's not a big deal. Why would you even care about that? People, other people do worse. And then the last one is forgetting or denying. And this is when the other person pretends to have forgotten what really happened or flat out denies promises he or she made to you. He or she will say things like, I don't know what you're talking about, or you're just making things up. These are the things that we have to be careful of when we're looking at the concept of guilt. But guilt can also be misinterpreted in another way. And that way is when we magnify the guilt and minimize Christ's sacrifice for us. Some of us, when we've done things that we're not happy about, we're constantly reminding ourselves. We have a term in psychology called rumination. Does anybody know what a cow does when they chew their food for the first time? It goes down and then it comes back up, and then they chew it again. It goes down, and I don't know how many times that happens, but that's where we get the word ruminate from. Your thoughts just keep going around and around and around, and you're constantly feeling the negative effects of your guilt. Well, in a previous seminar, I asked the question, or I told you you're supposed to ask the question when you have negative feelings, is it true and is it helpful? And for me to ruminate on something, that something might be true, but is it actually helpful for me to spend the next six months going over and 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 over again with it? No, it's not helpful. Christ Object Lessons, page 174, says, You who feel the most unworthy, fear not to commit your case to God. So rather than ruminating on something, what should we do? Commit that case to God. When he gave himself in Christ for the sin of the world, he undertook the case of every soul. And you could say your soul. That he spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Romans 8.32. Will he not fulfill the gracious word given for our encouragement and strength? God wants us to commit our guilt to him. He wants us to confess our sins, and then he says... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, and not just forgive us our sins, but to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Is it fair to the work that he's done for us to sit there and ruminate on it over and over and over and over and over and over again? When I'm, com- when I'm sitting there and thinking about my guilt over and over and over again, I'm actually discounting the sacrifice over and over and over and over and over again. 
So when I have the option to be ruminating on my guilt, what should I actually be ruminating on? On Christ's sacrifice for me. The Lord is disappointed, and I shared this before because this is one of my favorite passages in Desire of Ages. The Lord is disappointed when his people place a low estimate upon themselves. He desires his chosen heritage to value themselves according to the price he has placed upon them. God wanted them, else he would not have sent his son on such an expensive errand to redeem them. He has a use for them, and he is well pleased when they make the very highest demands upon him that they may glorify his name. They may expect large things if they have faith in his promises. So what's another thing that we are permitted to ruminate on? God's promises. We're not permitted to ruminate on our guilt. We're permitted to ruminate on God's sacrifice through his son and God's promises in his word. So lessons from the guilty. I want to share some things that I found about some people in the Bible who experienced guilt. Judas was treasurer. This is from Desire of Ages 559. Judas was treasurer for the disciples, and the treasure in the bag was often drawn upon to relieve the poor. Now the act of Mary, I'm going to have to pause a second because the projector just went out, and I haven't memorized this. I'm not to Randy Skeet's level yet. (laughs) That is an amazing gift he has. (laughs) It should be coming back. My experience with this is that it comes back pretty soon. If not, I can read it from here. Oh, you know what? Did I plug this in? I didn't plug it in. I'm surprised it lasted this long. This is so you can meditate on the promises of God. <laughs> Ruminate on the, on the sacrifice of Christ. We're supposed to do that every day anyway, aren't we? I'm going to see if I can... Find it quicker than. Okay, there we go. Now the act of Mary was in such marked contrast to his selfishness that he was put to shame. And according to his custom, he sought to assign a worthy motive for his objection to her gift. So see what's happening? He actually feels guilt and shame. And rather than acknowledge his guilt and shame, what is he doing? He's trying to disqualify the gift that Mary gave. Turning to the disciples, he asked, Why was not this ointment sold for 300 pence and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the bag and bear that was put therein. Judas had no heart for the poor. Had Mary's ointment been sold and the proceeds fallen into his possession, the poor would have received no benefit. This is what happens when we don't acknowledge our guilt. 
and we're not convicted to change. So what is our response? Like Judas, if we continue acting in guilt, it produces shame. Specifically, it leads to three things. One, we have to create more and more lies to live with ourselves. Do you know when you don't acknowledge your guilt and shame in a situation that you actually have to start telling more lies? And this never brings relief. It only creates a compulsive need to keep covering the previous lives, and actually it leads to delusion. delusion. They that plow iniquity reap the same, Job 4, 8. Do you know, I actually have worked with people, I believe, that are experiencing delusional disorders because they've been continually lying to themselves about choices that they've made in their lives. This is not a popular belief. I'm a therapist, a marriage and family therapist, and the people that I work with, most people who are therapists would say, oh, this is a mental disorder and all these things are happening because of biological problems in the brain and we need to do this and this to make it better. But I have actually seen people who have lied to themselves over and over about choices that they're making to the point that it creates delusion. And I believe that's a spiritual thing and we're, we're actually discounting the benefits of God when we say, oh, this is just, you know, what this person is having to deal with because of, you know, a biological reason. Now, I'm not saying there aren't biological factors involved, but I'm saying for the most part, this is what I see. Number two, another thing that specifically happens, we become focused solely on self. Proverbs 11.2 says, when pride cometh, then cometh shame. Number three, we become mentally unstable. What happened with Judas eventually in the end? He, gave, he committed suicide. Judas wound up taking his own life. Well, there's another person who felt guilt in the Bible too, and that's Zacchaeus. And Desire of Ages, page 555 and 556 says, before Zacchaeus had looked upon the face of Christ, notice this is before he, was, he even encountered Christ, he had begun the work that made him manifest as a true penitent. Before being accused by man, he had confessed his sin. He had yielded to the conviction of the Holy Spirit and had begun to carry out the teachings of the words written for ancient Israel as well as for ourselves. And the very first response of Zacchaeus to the love of Christ was in manifesting compassion toward the poor and suffering. It is when Christ is received as a personal savior that salvation comes to the soul. Zacchaeus had received Jesus not merely as a passing guest in his home, but as one to abide in the soul temple. For they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. Galatians 3.7 So what did he do when he felt guilt? He confessed that guilt, and he changed. He turned. Actually, that's what it means when we repent. We actually turn. We turn from what we've been doing. So what is our response? Like Zacchaeus, rather than get stuck in our guilt, our recognition of guilt, prompted by the work of the Holy Spirit, will move us ever forward. And specifically, it will lead to three things. One, proper and accurate sense of guilt and self. It will help us recognize where we have wronged God, others, and the temple of God that we are. True humility and softening of our hearts will take place. 
Number two, it will cause us to confess our wrong and make restitution as far as lies in our power. And that comes from the example of Zacchaeus. And number three, we will rejoice. Our sins are now covered by the blood of Christ Jesus and truth sets us free. And I want to, I'm not going to call on this person, but um, there's a person in this room that told me a story yesterday and it was about an accident that had happened to them. And this accident had been ruminating in their mind over and over again as they passed by the area where the accident happened. And it was one day that this person realized, you know, that's not a place where trauma happened. That's actually a place where God spared me. And so often that's what we do with our guilt. We think over and over again that the guilt is a reminder of all of the horrible things I've done, but the guilt should actually be a reminder that God has put enmity between me and Satan. I wouldn't be feeling this if God didn't care about me and my eternal salvation. He wouldn't put this guilt in my heart if he didn't want me to change, if he didn't love me and see something better for my life. But so often, rather than hear the words of God, we listen to the whispers of Satan. And we accept what he says about our guilt rather than what Jesus says about our guilt and what Jesus has done for us. So what was Christ's response? If you have your Bibles, I actually want you to be involved in this. Christ was, was and is not willing that any should perish. Do I have anybody who's willing to read 2 Peter 3, 9 and read it out loud for us? And then somebody who's also willing to read Matthew 25, 41. Who has 2 Peter 3, 9? Yes. Yeah, you can read it out loud. Absolutely. That's a beautiful word. Long-suffering. God is willing to sit with us patiently and wait for us to turn because he's not willing for us to perish. Who has Matthew 25, 41? Yes, would you read that please, out loud? Yeah. Now that sounds scary, but do you know what everlasting fire was prepared for? The devil and his angels, it was not made for us. God doesn't want us because with the first verse we heard, that's not, well, the first, second verse, it's not for us because the first verse, he's not willing that any should perish. It was never intended for us. God's, God's ideal is not for us to have to experience eternity without him. What is Christ's response? Well, Christ also took on our guilt and shame. Who would like to read Isaiah 50 verse 6 and then somebody hold on to Hebrews 12 verse 2? As soon as you have it, let me know. Isaiah 50, verse 6. Yes, uh-huh. Isaiah 
Christ can relate to our feelings of guilt and shame because he took on our feelings of guilt and shame. He actually took on all of ours together. We experience our own. Christ experienced all of it cumulatively. And then this Hebrews 12, 2 actually goes with this one, but it also goes with the next one. Christ actually considered it joy to take on our guilt and shame. So who has Hebrews 12, verse 2? Yes, you can read it. Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Christ considered it joy to take it on. Why do mothers consider it joy to get pregnant and then go through birth without an epidural, without any sort of pain relief? Because there's a baby at the end. I've told some of you my last name is Anguish, you know that, but my middle name is Joy. My parents call me their bundle of joy. It's nicer than their bundle of pain. <laughs> no, but they call me their bundle of joy. I'm not the only one who gets called that. Other parents call their children their bundle of joy. And yet the mom and the dad have gone through a lot of pain, maybe the mom more than the dad, but have gone through a lot of pain to get that bundle of joy. In the same way, Christ counted it joy to go to the cross because we would be with him forever one day. And yet he did that knowing that not each one of us would actually accept that gift and be with him. But he did that in the very chance that we would accept it. So he doesn't even have the promise that we will accept it, and he still counted it joy. And then Christ's response, Christ will banish any future burden of guilt and shame. And if I can have some people read, or someone read Isaiah 54, verse 4, Zephaniah 3, verse 19, and Ezekiel 34, 29 through 30. As soon as you get it, let me know. The first one, Isaiah 54. Yes, verse 4. Fear not, for thou shalt not be ashamed. Neither be thou confounded, for thou shalt not be put to shame. For thou shalt forget the shame of thy youth, and shalt not remember the reproach of thy widowhood. So if you feel shame and guilt right now, you should want heaven more than anything. Because that will be the day when you will no longer have to feel that anymore. Who has Zephaniah 3, verse 19? Yes. Behold, at that time I will undo all that afflicts you, and I will save her that halted and gather her that was in her now, and I will get the praise saying to every land where they have been Yes. Isn't that nice? God's gonna validate us in the end. How about Ezekiel thirty four verse twenty nine through thirty? Yes. Go ahead. We're his people. He's going to get rid of all of this. There will be no more shame and no more guilt. I actually had this before I even found out this was the song for GYC. This was, I, I, want, I thought, oh, we could sing this together, but I want to specifically show you the second verse. When Satan tempts me to despair 
and tells me of the guilt within. Upward I look and see him there, who made an end of all my sins. So where is the focus? On Jesus. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God, the just, is satisfied and took on him and pardoned me. And took and looked on him and pardoned me. I'm so, I get so excited when things happen like this because I had this way before. I didn't even know this was a song until I got here the other night. And I was like, what? That's on my slide. But this is a beautiful song. And so when, we, when you're singing it throughout the rest of this weekend, I want you to really recognize that when you feel guilt in your own lives, you should be really singing this verse out loud. Actually, the whole song. So what is your response? If you, see your, if you feel yourself to be the greatest sinner, Christ is just what you need, the greatest Savior. Lift up your head and look away from yourself, away from your sin to the uplifted Savior, away from the poisonous, venomous bite of the serpent to the Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world. And this is Ellen White, letter 98 and 1893. So the picture that I had at the beginning was a man looking at his shadow. And I replaced it at the end with a man looking at the shadow of the cross. So when you're tempted to look at your own shadow, the darkness in your own life, remember that Christ's cross casts a shadow. And that was over all of our sin. And his light, his brightness, is what we can take on ourselves. Thank you very much, and if you'll bow your heads, I'd like to end with a prayer. Dear Father in heaven, oh God, you are so good to us. You've provided every means for us to be with you in heaven, and I thank you so much that you've given me the privilege to share that with everyone here. Thank you for that gift. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for sending Jesus to this earth, not just to you know, be born, as we often think of at this time of year, but to actually live for us. And the culmination of that life was also Christ's death for us. But that death would not have made any difference if he had not lived a perfect life and been through all that he did to take on our shame and our guilt. Thank you so much for that. And continue to remind us of that through the Holy Spirit. And I ask these things and I thank you for these things. In Jesus' name, amen. This message was presented at the GYC 2016 conference, When All Has Been Heard, in Houston, Texas. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org.